Greetings and welcome to the second poetry cast. I'm your host, Jonathan Stone, and today we're going to weave this show around the Andalusian concept of duende. I discovered this term from a book of lectures and poems written by Federico Garcia Lorca, edited by Christopher Marrer, and aptly titled In Search of Duende. If you tuned in last month, we discussed some translation theory and apply that theory to one of Pablo Neruda's sonnets. Today we're going to focus more on inspiration, influence, and some of the less tangible aspects of artistic theory. We'll still read some Neruda, but we're also going to hear some poems and ideas from other Spanish-language writers, such as Jorge Luis Borges, and as I mentioned before, Federico Garcia Lorca. Duende is a difficult concept to pin down and dissect. It's similar to trying to define poetry. Like wine on the tongue, you must taste poetry to know it. Duende is similar in its manifestations. And here's a taste, a vintage specimen by Lorca, which I believe is not only an excellent poem, but if you listen closely, you can hear the duende lurking in the shadows of his words. It's titled Night. Candle, lamp, lantern, and firefly, the constellation of the dart. Little windows of gold trembling, and cross upon cross rocking in the dawn. Candle, lamp, lantern, and firefly. Of course, that was a translation of Orca's original by Jaime de Angulo, but you could still feel the depth of the original through the translation. Literally translated into English, duende means spirit. According to the famous Andalusian musician Manuel Torre, and quoted by Lorca in his book In Search of Duende, Torre explains that all that has black sounds has duende. And Lorca adds that these black sounds are fastened in the mire that we all know and all ignore, the fertile silt that gives us the very substance of art. I suppose you could say that the more substance a work of art contains, the greater its duende is felt. And if you'd like to juxtapose this Andalusian concept with Freudian or psychoanalytic analytic theory, for example, we could argue that since the most impressive events of our lives, besides birth, that is, are sex and death, the presence of the duende is felt most near the mention or presence of death. Therefore, an object or person exhibits the duende by reminding us of our fleeting existence and by leaving a deep impression upon our psyches. Let's hear another poem, this time by an admirer of Lorca, the Argentinian poet Jorge Luis Borges. I mentioned Borges last time in respect to translation theory. In the last show, I briefly explained his understanding of translation. If you remember, he classified three distinct and hierarchical levels of translation through the German terms Übersetzung, Nachdichtung, and Umdichtung. Here's a poem of his, again translated into English, titled History of the Night. Throughout the course of the generations, men constructed the night. At first she was blindness, thorns raking bare feet, fear of wolves. We shall never know who forged the word for the interval of shadow dividing the two twilights. We shall never know in what age it came to mean the starry hours. Others created the myth. They made her the mother of the unruffled fates that spin our destiny. They sacrificed black ewes to her and the cock who crows his own death. The Chaldeans assigned to her twelve houses to Zeno infinite words. She took shape from Latin hexameters in the terror of Pascal. Luis de Leon saw in her the homeland of his stricken soul. 
Now we feel her to be inexhaustible like an ancient wine, and no one can gaze on her without vertigo, and time has charged her with eternity. And to think that she wouldn't exist except for those fragile instruments, the eyes. As you could hear, Borges wistfully follows the etymology of both the word and the concept of night. Notice how he traces the story of night with its absolutely integral association with human, human history. How incredible that something so primal and archetypal, something that has always been with us, can be so elusive in its origins and so malleable in its connotations and associations. The interval of shadow certainly does not have the same associations for your contemporary human being living in an urban setting as it did for ancient humanity, who were much more exposed to the elements in all their manifestations and uncertainties. Yet I believe we modern humans delude ourselves sometimes with the confidence in our modern society. Look at what Hurricane Katrina wrought upon New Orleans, and witness the fear that sweeps over a population prior to a snowstorm. It is in those situations that we realize the instability of our vast social construction that we have deemed developed. Sure, our society is reasonably secure, and therefore reasonably predictable, but in such moments of chaos as those found within a storm or an earthquake or tsunami, or within some other destructive situation, it is during such times, if I may borrow a phrase from Theodore Adorno, that the lines of our society's artificial framework begin to show through. Lorca and Borges see those lines and attempt to point them out to others. They exploit the inconsistency and uncertainty of language through language, and through the process of deconstructing the framework of language, they also deconstruct the very foundation of the myth of civilization. They remind us that as we have invented the night, we have also invented our institutions and even ourselves. I'm afraid that I've digressed a bit, but my point was to let you hear the similarities between the two writers, Lorca and Borges, and to hear how the spirit or the duende of their works remains despite the translations. Again, Lorca explains in his book how often the duende of the composer passes into the duende of the interpreter. If you listen to the last poetry cast, then you would remember how I expressed my desire to capture the spirit of Neruda's works. I want to produce a faithful translation of his works rather than a necessarily accurate one. As Satan possessed the serpent in Paradise Lost, I'd like the duende of Neruda to possess me and guide my words to manipulate the reader of those words. I'd like to cite one last phrase from Lorca. That with idea, sound, or gesture, he says, the duende enjoys fighting the creator on the very rim of the well. In Paradise Lost, Adam and Eve gain more than mere knowledge of good and evil. They also earn the ability to create. They also, only after eating the fruit do they make clothing and create children. That is the essence of the duende. Without the possibility of death, creation would be unnecessary. The duende knows this and thrives off it. And now we're ready to hear Neruda's fifth sonnet from his collection, Cien Sonetas de Amor, first in its original Spanish. No te toque la noche, ni el are, ni la aurora, solo la tierra, la virtud de los racimos, las manzanas que crecen oyendo la agua pura, el barro y las resinas de tu país fragante. Desde Quinchamali, donde hicieron tus ojos, hasta tus pies criados para mí en la frontera, eres la greda oscura que conozco. En tus caderas, Toco de nuevo todo el trigo. 
Tal vez tú no sabías, Arocana, que cuando antes de muerte me olvidé de tus besos, mi corazón quedó recordando tu boca. Y fui como un jarido por las calles hasta que comprendí que había encontrado amor, mi territorio de besos y volcanes. In my English translation, <clears throat> which will surely pale in comparison along with my Spanish accent, but here we go. It is, here it is in English. Do not raise the night, nor the air, nor the dawn, only the earth, the virtuous roots, the apples rouging with pure rivers, the soil and sap of your fragrant landscape. Since Quinchamali, where they sculpted your eyes, since your feet were baked for me in La Frontera, you are the dark clay that I've always known. From your hips I sow the new, I gather what grows. Perhaps you didn't know, Arocana, before I felt the moisture of your lips, my heart forgot that my mouth exists for such soft expressions. As I wander bloody and blind through your streets, before I understood where I encountered love, the distant dawn erupted, scorching my retina. Nerda's muse is earthy and grounded. Despite this description, he lifts her beyond the soil, beyond the mundane, and into the realms of the gods. She reminds me of a bronze sculptor, a work of art inspired by the gods, only instead of bronze she is of the substance from where she came, earth and clay. Her radiance is such that she blinds the speaker, and yet this is not a grievance against her. On the contrary, this piece is in reverence. Many of Nerida's sonnets are devotions to someone, be it an actual woman, his muse, or perhaps both. He is indeed in love with his subject, and that love is not always pleasant. In fact, it's at times painful, but it is always present. Throughout the sonnets, we hear a recurring theme of a fragrant landscape, as exemplified in the first strophe of what you just heard. Especially in the first dozen or so sonnets, we hear his muse compared to a landscape, the one from which she came. She contains the most distinctive aspects of her birthplace, and they compose her very being. By the way, did you hear the duende lurking behind Neruda's words? Sonnet 5 doesn't necessarily concern death, but I would say it alludes to darker sounds. I mean, it's certainly not light in its content. Many of the words are dark and forceful, such as bloody, blind, erupted, scorched. Of course, these are my translations, but even in his original, the speaker is harido, or wounded, and also lost. However, by the end of the poem, I walk away with a sense that the speaker is grateful, and that Arokana has once again, as in the first sonnet, somehow saved him from obscurity. Well, actually... Why exactly would the speaker need to be saved from obscurity? It seems that, from a view through the lens of traditional romantic poetry in this modern world, literally overflowing the edges with people, a focus on the subjective experiences sometimes necessary for one's fulfillment. In this case, the speaker has discovered love, which lends value to his existence. Arukana values his existence, and he in turn praises her existence through his sonnet. Thus, they each lend value to the other through the other. Sort of the opposite of the Hegelian concept of the other, which focuses more on a slave and master relationship rather than on loved and beloved. But that's another discussion altogether. I must now wrap this up. But wait, what do all these writers, Lorca, Borges, and Neruda, all have in common besides having written poetry in the Spanish language? Honestly, I don't even know if Borges read much Neruda, but I know he read a lot of Lorca. Likewise, I don't know if Neruda read much of Lorca, or vice versa. 
They all wrote around the same time period, and after having placed a poem by each of them here in this podcast. Now they all share a common literary thread, woven together in the present by an aspiring American student of literature. Perhaps they, they have nothing in common except for the spirit of their work and the zeitgeist of their epic. That's one reason why literature is so intriguing to me, as an achronological quality to it that transcends the fiction of time. I would even say that all three poets were inspired by a similar circumstance that was beyond their control. They were all possessed by the Duende and wrote in the shadow of the zeitgeist. They all realized not only the fiction of time, but the myth of society. Their poems are tributes to and examples of human constructions. I suppose that's all for today. If you haven't heard the first poetry cast, then please download it and check it out. It's free and painless. And don't forget to keep an eye out for the next poetry cast, which should be available sometime in mid-September. Oh, and if you like, you can email any comments or suggestions to poetrycast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.